Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Jane Friedman. She has 20 years of experience in the publishing industry with expertise in digital media strategy for authors and publishers. She is the publisher of The Hot Sheet, the essential newsletter on the publishing industry for authors, and was named Publishing Commentator of the Year by Digital Book World in 2019. In addition to being a columnist for Publishers Weekly, Jane is a professor with The Great Courses, which released her 24-lecture series, How to Publish Your Book. Her book for creative writers, The Business of Being a Writer, received a starred review from Library Journal. Jane speaks regularly at conferences and industry events such as Book Expo America, Digital Book World, and the AWP Conference, and has served on panels with the National Endowment for the Arts and the Creative Work Fund. Welcome, Jane. Hello, it's a delight to be here. I'm so glad you're here. And I just am bowled over by all that you do. I'm sure I'm not the first person to say that. But you have a blog and books and you speak and you have online classes and so many resources for writers, including your sermon, your business sermon that you occasionally offer online live. And so how do you find the time for all that you do? Well, everything that you mentioned did happen over a period of 20 years, as you said in your intro, so it's it's not something that got built overnight. Uh, I think it's important for people to understand that, that these things take shape over long, long periods. But I think that the simple and direct answer to your question is that I have the luxury of focusing entirely on my work. You know, I don't have responsibilities related to family or, or children. Um, I'm very healthy. You know, so I mm. I get to be in my office, you know, basically your your 40 hour work week, maybe a little extra here and there. And I've also got a husband who works for me. So oh. you know, I, <laughs> I didn't realize that. Yeah, that certainly, you know, helps with the, the administration burden, the customer service burden, all of the things that are needed to operate a good business. Yeah. So he's part of the biz. I didn't realize that. So when did you have a sense that you could be a resource for other writers? And actually, let me let me go back even further. Uh, you, you began your career as a writer, is that right? I began in the publishing industry, although, I mean, if you want to go like way, way back, I was a creative writing student in college, but my internship was at a publishing company. I graduated college and I started working for that publishing company. So I've always been on the business side of the industry, working as an editor, and then doing my own creative work on the side. Mm. So when did you get a sense that, you know, and I don't want to put words into your mouth, but I think I have something here, or writers seem to keep coming to me, My things are just building and building. When did you realize, I think I have something that I need to really focus on and offer? Well, when I started working for that publishing company I mentioned, um, I ended up segueing into the Writer's Digest division Mm -hmm. of the company. So for those who aren't familiar with Writer's Digest, it's a hundred-year-old brand that offers, you know, magazines, books, online education for an audience of writers. And I spent 
uh, 10 years at that brand. And so a lot of the knowledge that I have and experience and for lack of a better word, the brand around my name really starts with Writer's Digest. Now, as far as where I am today and the business that I've developed, you know, that started to take shape with the advent of social media because it was a way for me to be visible and to talk about my knowledge and what I wanted writers to know, like directly to them without having to go through the, you know, the Writer's Digest channels. Mm. So that was a really really big and meaningful change for me. That's when I also started my own website that was, you know, for Jane Friedman and not just about Writer's Digest. It was when I started my own blogging effort and and so on. So Mm -hmm. a lot of the roots in my business go back to that social media, early days of social media, like I'm thinking like 2008, 2009. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so did you get surprised by some of the questions and concerns that came your way? Or do you get surprised by, you know, what writers might misunderstand about putting their work into the world or the publishing world? The most common question has always remained the same since, you know, the very first day I entered the business, which is, how do I get my book published? Now, that question has gotten more complicated to answer because there are many more paths than there used to be in in the mid to late 90s. You know, self-publishing is a viable option. There is now so-called hybrid publishing. And there are a lot of other variations on digital publishing that people are curious about and that can actually take the place of publishing a book, like an email newsletter or a serialization. So, you know, that question is really at the heart of a lot that I do and then helping people understand that even if you're successful in the path that you've chosen, regardless of how you publish, it's very rare to make a living mm-hmm. just selling books. And so I try to help people understand that they should not quit their day job. <laughs> they should mm-hmm. you know, be, be conservative in their expectations, uh, which is in my mind key to success. Having low expectations actually, <laughs> so that you won't be disappointed. Which is funny coming from you because I feel like you were the epitome of standards and motivation and goal setting. Yes, indeed. But I just find that there are so many myths and misconceptions about how how the business works, what success looks like. There's a real taboo surrounding money, what the money looks like. So I try to offer transparency around those issues so people aren't surprised when things just don't go how they expect they went for other people, which people are almost never really honest or transparent about Mm -hmm. how things went. No one likes to be asked, how's your book doing? They feel like it's an (laughs) intrusive question. I have been asked that myself. Yes. You know, how many have you sold? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Not a favorite question. They, They don't, it's like asking someone's salary, essentially. I wish more people felt frank and direct in answering that question, because I think the myths that I was talking about would they would start going away if people were really honest about what's happening. Yeah, and I also think, I'm not sure about, you know, how much experience writers have that come to you and how many of them are aware of this, but I think it's really easy as a new writer and and even maybe a writer who's been around a little bit to point to the the wildly successful books or memoirs Mm -hmm. and feel like yours will be like that. Yes, yes. I mean, it's very natural to, to to dream big, to, to want to emulate the success that you see, to feel like you have that potential. And I don't want to like just crush people's dreams and say that that's very unlikely to happen. Um, the thing that often gets missed is when the, you do have those breakout successes, it, 
it was almost never overnight, you know, <laughs> and I keep using that phrase, but I think it's important because people often see the results. They don't see the journey or the work that went on behind the scenes. They don't know about the relationships or the failures or the many things that contributed to finally having that stunning success. Yes. And, you know, I was wondering in regard to memoir, how have you seen the industry change in the last 10 years or so? And maybe that's the wrong time frame. Maybe you want to change those that span a little bit. But what what changes have you seen most dynamically? Yeah, I might even go back to the 90s for that one, because I feel like that's when there was more interest than I would have seen before. And it kind of coincided with my entry into the industry. Like when you look at Angela's Ashes, Mm -hmm. um, Frank McCore, you know, that that was a a pretty important moment, I think. Uh, A lot of people were inspired by that. And then, I don't know, 10 years later, I think about, you get Cheryl Strayed's Wild, Mm -hmm. uh, Elizabeth Gilbert's Eat, Pray, Love. And those books remain pretty iconic. They get mentioned a lot as comparable titles when people are pitching their book. Mm -hmm. You know, lots of people have read them or seen the movies or they know those authors' names. And so, you know, the stories that are told in those books, they're told by people who aren't celebrities. They didn't necessarily have platforms or, well, we could argue about that. I mean, (laughs) there was um, Strayed's Dear Sugar Column and Mm -hmm. Elizabeth Gilbert had already published three or four books by the time Eat, Pray, Love came out. But, you know, there wasn't, it, it, it feels like in today's market, you could see a bigger challenge in getting those stories published. Mm -hmm. Um, So thinking about the last, how things have developed over the last 10 years, it's just so much more competitive because of the growth of online media and how books get sold today versus 10 years ago. Publishers and agents are looking for authors to bring to the table some sort of platform that's going to help the book move Mm. once it gets launched. And that's not to take away responsibility from the publisher. They just, they, they need some foundation to work with in order to get the media attention, in order for their machinery to work well. They need the author to bring something to the table. Mm-hmm. And so do you think memoirists need to take that into consideration when, when they're thinking about getting their work into the world, that platform even for memoirists is vitally important? It's, this is an amazingly difficult question to answer. I'll try my best. So if I wanted to like re- just stereotype the sorts of memoir projects that get bought and sold, and I'm going to talk right now just in a limited way, like for, by agents and commercial publishers, like the big New York houses. Mm-hmm. We can talk about smaller presses later, but I just want to talk about the most commercial, like the biggest advance, the most probability of a New York Times mm. bestseller. To, there are usually two types of deals that happen. There's the celebrity sort of deal. So celebrities have built-in platform. Everyone knows them. That's why they're a celebrity. And those people can get book deals pretty easily. You know, they, Or you can look at it in terms of people who are in the public eye. Uh, this would include politicians. Anyone who is in the media spotlight and can guarantee some media attention when they spill the beans in this tell-all book or whatever it is that the book is focused on. Um, We want to know the backstories and the more intimate experiences of these people who we've watched, you know, we may have watched them grow up or fail or perform on the public stage, and now we want more of what was going on from their perspective. Then there's another type of memoir deal that is by what I call 
the average Joe. And this includes me. Um, (laughs) And me, because I I remember sending you my manuscript before I found a small publisher for it. And I I was like, please help. Probably most people listening right now fall into the average Joe category. There is nothing wrong with the average Joe category. But this is where things get super competitive. And normally, and I'm, you know, in most cases, these books sell because there is, the, the writing is like fall off your chair amazing you know there's something there about the voice or the style that just makes it an an incredible read like you would want to read what the person had for breakfast it's so entertaining (laughs) and that's that's combined with usually with some sort of premise or conflict or situation that just when you hear about it you're like wow i want to know what happens next you know there's just something unusual like you want to you want to live through that person vicariously or it just it just generates a lot of curiosity about how this person dealt with this issue i don't want to say sensational exactly like the scenario would be sensational but it has to be something that again would get media attention like people mm-hmm. would feel compelled to cover this review it sometimes if you're writing about a situation that's really part of the zeitgeist like a lot of people are, you know, wrapped up in this issue. You know, there's something timely or resonant about mm-hmm. the problem you, you're facing, and it really ties into the cultural conversation. That can be a way um, to get the memoir deal. So, like, I have a colleague I worked with uh, on a publication called Scratch Magazine. She just signed a deal for her memoir. It was a good deal through an agent to a big five, and it's about living in California during the time of the wildfires. Mm. And so it touches on environmentalism, ecology, the landscape there, and also her own experience of problematic health and deterioration. So when you, you know, she's able, I mean, we'll see when the memoir comes out, but I assume she's able to meld together, you know, both publicly what we're seeing happen and are worried about in California with the wildfires and climate change and all of that. And she's mixing in her personal experience. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, that's an example, I think, of what I'm talking about, where she's not a fit. She's an average Joe. Um, She's a great writer. And she's found a way into this topic that's both personal and it's going to likely resonate with people concerned about climate change. Mm, Yeah, and that reminds me a little bit. I was watching one of your Sunday sermons, and you answered a question about memoir, and I'll I'll try to paraphrase here. You said that a lot of people who may touch on social issues in their book, they might be calling their manuscript something other than memoir Mm -hmm. when they shouldn't. And so can you talk about memoir versus narrative nonfiction? So for me, memoir is when you're writing a first-person story that's focused on some problem or challenge in your life. The the lens that you're applying is your own. The life that you're analyzing or reflecting on or telling a story about is your own. Although of course you can you can bring in research and current events and and obviously there are going to be other people who are characters mm-hmm. in that story. But still the focus is on your own journey, your your character arc and there's a beginning, middle and end to that. Narrative nonfiction is generally stories about people, places, and things. You were telling a story about the world. It 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 could be Seabiscuit, like Lauren Hillenbrand mm-hmm. wrote about Seabiscuit, and that's you know uh, got turned into a movie. You you might be telling the story of a place. There's Behind the Beautiful Forever's by Catherine mm-hmm. Boo about her time in India, and she writes about that place and the people there. 
so, and there are ways to also write narrative nonfictions about ideas. And I, I'm failing to come up with an example here. But if you look like at things like, like Mary Roach has written, that's kind of classic, I think, narrative nonfiction. And it doesn't mean that you yourself can't be in the story. I mean, you, you're the author and often you are playing a role somehow in what's unfolding. But you yourself aren't the point. You're, 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 it's not your journey that you're describing. It's, mm-hmm. it's something else. Do you think that writers want to shy away from calling their manuscripts memoir? Not if that's what you're writing. I think, right. <laughs> I think one of the other things that happens with memoir is you get these hybrid memoir forms. So hybrid memoir is what I typically see when people are mixing first-person storytelling with how-to information. So Hmm. let's say you went through several years of caretaking for an aging parent and you had no idea going in what you were up against. You have learned so much and you want to spare other people some of the the pain and tragic mistakes that you made. And so now you're going to write a memoir about the experience that includes how-to information or lessons learned or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Those types of projects are challenging to sell. You know, publishers and agents like things to either be a story (laughs) or be the how-to. But when you combine those two elements, it's sometimes two different audiences. Like if I were in that situation where I had to go take care of my mom and I were going to go look for a book, I'm not going to be looking for a memoir. I'm going to mm-hmm. look for, give me as fast right. as you can, the top five things I need to know. It's I don't funny. Care. It's funny because when you it described it as an example, I thought, oh, yeah, that could be a really good book. But then when you put it that way, you know, a memoir reader is probably going to bask. I mean, I don't want to, you know, generalize, but bask in it. You know, mm, really yes. d- dive into that experience and want to kind of put it on. Whereas a how-to, more urgent type of reader, yes. you know, they want to have the brass tacks. Precisely. And I think where this gets really confusing for people is that there are examples of super successful hybrid memoir out there, but they're usually by celebrities. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, people want to be that exception. And they're like, well, so-and-so did it, so why can't I? And I'm like, well... Um, yeah. If you have a platform, maybe. Well, right. And actually, let's suppose you have a memoir and you start to query agents and you get a little bit of nibbles. It's not going so well. Or even if you do get an agent and then they're not sure that they can sell it. Would you say that when it comes to big five, you know, that that avenue that so many writers want to pursue, it, it, to me, it feels like the, the promised land. You know, you get an agent. The agent loves you. You, know, you get a publishing house with a big five. Boom. Like, awesome. Awesome. Mm-hmm. But would you say, and, and you can tell me if I'm wrong here, that memoir is maybe a harder category to get into the big five? It is. And it, it's it, it's mainly about competition. So you know, just think about generationally where we're at. The baby boomers have reached an age where they're reflecting and now have the time and resource. So you're just seeing so many stories get pitched from that generational cohort. And so if I'm not saying that if you are a baby boomer to give up all hope, that that's not the <laughs> message, but agents and publishers are just seeing a lot of stories coming out of that generation right now. And it's so it becomes harder to distinguish yourself. What particular angle do you have? Um, what's going to set your story apart? And I think something that happens when people are going through this submissions process, people will get maybe a very friendly rejection that maybe mentions platform. Well, you know, if you had a platform, um, maybe we could do this. And I think that can be 
one of the meanest rejections <laughs> ever because and, and time wasting rejections for the writer if they take it seriously hmm. because it can get you running in circles trying to build a platform when that maybe wasn't actually the reason it was rejected the reason uh-huh. it was rejected is the market is saturated or we don't see the market for this story or I've already seen 10 of these today, but no one's going to tell you your life sounds same old, same mm. old. Like that's, that's also mean. Um, <laughs> so let's just blame it on platform and um, hope that you, you know, uh, fail at doing that. And then we never hear from you again. <laughs> wow. And you know, the platform, it reminds me to circle back to that uh, Billie Eilish. I'm sure you saw that the New York Times article about mm-hmm. platform and the promise of yes. how many copies you'll sell. And so that that also makes me think about platform again, in terms of it. it's not the end all. I mean, I do see a lot of writing community conversations about, you know, I need to build my platform, I need to build my platform. And it's not that I think you don't need to build your platform. But I don't know that that is the only way in if you're a nonfiction writer. I couldn't agree more. It is not the only way in. Um, it is the most high-risk, failure-prone approach. Um, it, mm. it just requires so much patience, and it's so hard to like reverse engineer that. Once you're told you don't have the platform, then to go back and try and set it up is just, it's painful. It's so painful. So I usually suggest that people look at can you publish essays? Can you like refocus on writing and producing more work that ties into the memoir or to your book length project? Um, maybe there's an excerpt, but I, I would I would push people to go beyond like just pulling something out of the book and think about what do you want to write and publish on actively for many, mm. many years to come. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You see a lot of memoir deals that happen because someone published a really compelling piece at just the right time that got people talking in a new and exciting way. And that's what agents and publishers want to see. They want to see that you can tap into something that gets people talking, online mm-hmm. especially. Mm-hmm. Although that, of course, is another another difficult route. I mean, it doesn't happen to everyone yes. either, right? Like, Or you can publish it, but it may not be in the New York Times. But if that happens, fantastic, right? right. It, it, and this is the part that can be so frustrating. I mean, there's so many parts to writing and the writing life. They can be so frustrating because it, it, it just comes up again and again because we're doing this because we feel compelled to, because writers have to write, because we have something to say. And then there's this other part that you just have to push yourself into the world in all these ways. And there are so many traps and dead ends. Yes, there are. I try, I try to encourage people by telling them to look at the ways they can produce work and share their message that aren't necessarily book dependent. Sometimes, you know, the book still holds this immense cultural authority. It's still like this benchmark for success. I find that younger generations aren't as tied into that thinking, which frees them up to do lots of different lots of different publishing methods and ways of sharing mm-hmm. what they care about. You could see this with memoirist Ashley Renard, who, Mm -hmm. before her memoir came out, which is Swing, uh, about a a marriage um, that undergoes some some interesting challenges, (laughs) she started posting on Instagram and TikTok ways to revitalize uh, your marriage or, you know, bring more spice back into your sex life, how to keep monogamy hot, I think was her tagline. Mm -hmm. It, It might still be. And that developed 
for her a really significant audience that helped her book be super successful right out of the gate and she self-published yes and she's got another one and shout out to Ashley Renard who's led the way for so many writers to promote themselves she's got another one coming out called keeping it hot Mm -hmm. exactly so you know I know that not every memoir and not every writer is going to have that that component to it where they feel like they can go and in the way that Ashley did and post tips or advice, you know, it does get into that how to hybrid um, problem that I discussed earlier. Mm -hmm. So you do have to be cautious, but, but really what I'm talking about with Ashley is not so much the fact that she does how to content, but she considers, you know, the stuff that she does on social to be valuable and meaningful in a way of helping people. Mm-hmm. And I find that many writers' motivation is exactly that. They want, they, want to, they want to be visible in the community. They want to be meaningful in the work that they put out. And that is possible in lots of different formats and on many different platforms. Mm-hmm. And and there's also to consider that there are other ways to publish. There are small presses, there are university yes. presses, there are indie presses, so many different avenues. So in the memoir manuscripts you've consulted on um, and that you see a lot of, is there a particular craft issue that comes up again and again? There, there are quite a few with memoir especially um, because people are so close to the material, they just can't see it clearly. I think one of the issues that comes into play is the memoir that's actually an autobiography. So this is where you write about your entire life from your earliest childhood memories to the present day. And so usually that's way too expansive for a commercial memoir or even a small press memoir. You know, autobiography is the realm of celebrities and politicians. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's really hard to pull that off, uh, especially if it's your first book. You have to focus usually on a on a very particular challenge or a, a three to five year period, maybe. If you look at like Wild by Strait and Eat, Pray, Love, you can see focused, very focused. They're about a very specific time. Another issue that comes up is people have written a series of vignettes or anecdotes, like my wild and crazy times traveling through Asia at the age of 23. And there's no particular meaning or point to it other than, let me tell you about these wild and crazy times. You know, it's like all your bar stories, one after another. Right. <laughs> and they, they can be fun and entertaining, but it, it, it kind of lacks that narrative arc that commercial publishers are looking for. They want, you know, they want to see stakes. They want to see some sort of character arc developing. Another issue that comes up is the backstory problem, which happens in fiction too. So this Mm -hmm. is no different for memoirists where you feel this necessity to explain everything up front before the story actually begins. And just knowing what do you leave in, what do you take out, what detail is important. You don't want to like empty your entire purse onto the table or your entire satchel or briefcase and let people like sort through it, trying to figure out which one of these things is most important. What am I looking for? Like you want to be disciplined Mm -hmm. and saying this, this is what's material to the story I'm telling rather than Mm -hmm. getting off on the tangent. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, where working with an editor can be really helpful if you don't have a writer's group or or both, because people can help you focus on what it is you're trying to really say and hone in on. Yes, absolutely. So, Jean, now I have some listener questions. I'm going to start with the one that I think is probably the most important in these questions and the most universal. And I don't know if you can approach it in, you know, the time we have left, but how should I craft a query letter for memoir? I usually suggest starting with 
a scene, event, some sort of symbolic moment that you that you can get across in about 100, 200 words max, something that indicates the tension or problem that the story is dealing with. Think of it as, I mentioned bar stories earlier, think of it as the cocktail anecdote, the, the sort of thing that if people hear it, they are dying for you to continue and say more, or they, it inspires so many questions and you become the object of their fascination. Mm-hmm. So that's what I usually, when I used to edit queries, I don't any longer, I was usually looking for that scene, moment, something that's just hopefully very visceral um, and that that encapsulates the intrigue of of the memoir problem or the character problem and also includes your voice and style because memoir sells often on the strength of the voice. So that needs to come through in the query. Great. Okay, here's another one. Is it okay to read manuscript excerpts on podcasts before publishing? Sure, absolutely. Full steam ahead. (laughs) Okay. Um, What about submitting portions or variations of unpublished book material to essay contests or for newspaper articles, etc.? fully endorse you should do it. I think some of the underlying fear to these questions is that you're going to be damaging the potential for your work with a, a publisher. Like if you have anything that's previously published, it might make them less interested. Mm. But it's the opposite. The more that you can build up your visibility and platform and show that other people have found your stories interesting and valuable, the more that's going to act as social proof for the agent or publisher. Like, oh, someone else found this interesting and worthy of attention. I'll take a closer look. Ooh, so important. I love that. I can already see my my little takeaway from this episode being in that quote right there. Okay, I have been blogging about a few pivotal events in my life. This is a memoir question. The question is, can we use or can we not use blog material in books we author? And if so, how are there rules around it? You absolutely can. Um, just make sure that... If you're offered a contract by any sort of publisher, whether it's for an article, a book, whatever, that you make it clear to them and you're very transparent about this material previously appeared at my blog or wherever it appeared, it doesn't really matter where, and if they want you to take it down, they'll tell you that. But in many cases, they're not going to do that. And then you just make sure that the contract is transparent and you're transparent with them about the the publication status. Okay, great. And then here's the last one. And I've heard this a lot around memoir too in terms of identity. So here's the question. What do you recommend about protecting identity so as not to get sued when your relationship to someone in your book is a matter of public record and they're still alive? This is tough because in the United States, at least, people sue all the time, even if they have no basis for it. (laughs) So you can never eliminate all risk when you're writing a memoir. If you upset someone, whether they're clearly identifiable or not, whether they're named or not, if people are angry enough or upset enough and they have the financial means, you could you know, be at risk of a lawsuit. Now, the truth is it is hugely unlikely any author is going to get sued for what's in their memoir. Uh, And if you're working with a publisher, they're going to have a legal review of that manuscript and they're going to do some due diligence around it, which you should be ready for. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. partly 
you know, there, there's a fact checking exercise that goes on at times, or, you know, they might ask you to take out some things to reduce the risk. Um, so you should be prepared for that. But on a more personal level, you have to think about when you publish a memoir, there are some bridges that you can potentially burn or relationships that are going to be disrupted. That's just the nature of this genre. And there are certain things that you can do to mitigate that damage. But people really disagree <laughs> about mitigation, you know. Mm -hmm. Some people will send the material in advance to the people who are portrayed or mentioned. Some people will just give a heads up without sharing the entirety of the manuscript, or maybe they'll share a small portion. There are lots of different strategies, and I can share some articles with you that you can link to in the show notes. Oh, that'd be great. With yeah. some advice. There's no one right way, but I, I just want to say that even if you change names, like in a good way to protect people or to protect yourself, if you're concerned about that, that doesn't remove the risk entirely if people are still identifiable. So I get, like I said, this is a really complex area and everyone's situation is different. If you have like really serious concerns, and by serious, I mean you really think that there could, like you're dealing with someone that your, your, your immediate thought is, yeah, they're going to sue me. <laughs> then consult with a lawyer if your publisher isn't uh, on board or if you're not working with a publisher. It, it would be worth the peace of mind just to get some eyes on that, on the material, so you can reduce risk. Okay, great. So now this question, this last question comes from me. You've written that, quote, you, you care deeply about serving writers and all those in the creative professions and helping them succeed in their careers, end quote. So can you speak to why? I would say that from my experience at Writer's Digest, where I, I must have dealt with thousands of writers over the years, you know, asking for help, emailing or writing letters, asking this or that question, um, meeting them at conferences and so on. There's so many people out there who take advantage of writers inexperience or lack of knowledge about how the industry works. There are countless people who have been scammed or cheated out of money or misdirected. There are just a lot of ways that, that people prey on writers' dreams. It's one of the easiest things for uh, a service or a business to do. So it just was always heartbreaking to see those instances of where people had spent years or lots of money under the direction or guidance of someone who did not have their best interests at heart. So that's part of, that's part of it, just seeing that activity out there and realizing that it's hard to find someone who will just tell you the truth about, mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. a situation. Cause it's much, even if, even if the reality or the truth is bad, at least then you can decide how you're gonna deal with it rather than being sold a bill of goods. I think probably one of the most common is where someone makes all sorts of promises about the success you're gonna have or how you're gonna get published with this much money. And, you know, and, and, and because maybe you're getting complimented on the quality of your work or you're validated in some way, you just, you, you, you so badly want it to be true. Um, that, you're, that the work is great and you're gonna be successful, that you miss all of the warning signs, um, that, that you're either getting involved in a scam or you're dealing with someone who is, is taking advantage of you. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Um, I, I really, really wanted to know about that because our reasons for pursuing the things we spend the most time on can be so different. And it's, it's, that's what I thought, but you know, the answer is even more 
lovely. And um, finally, do you have a, a parting bit of advice for memoirists? Just one last word of wisdom that you'd like to share? My wisdom for just about any writer is patience. I think people tend to expect results more quickly than they come. It's a series of small steps, whether it's the writing process itself or the marketing process or the business building or platform building. It can't all be crammed in at once into like a year. I think people give themselves really unrealistic goals or the expectations that are put on them by who even sometimes family members and friends like this better turn a profit in two years or you have to stop <laughs> this writing thing i mean it's it's it takes as long as it takes and we're all on different schedules so give yourself permission to take the time give yourself the grace to make mistakes um and and then you get up the next day and you continue <laughs> okay, great. And where where can people find you? Where's the best? I mean, I already know the answer to this, but I'm just going to ask you to say it. Where's the best place for people to find you? Uh, JaneFriedman.com is my main site where you can find out about my newsletters, classes, resources, and all that good stuff. Great. Thank you so much for being my guest. I'm so happy we were able to do this. My pleasure, Rindit. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. For more about this episode and my guest, please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here.